This week, Peter and Jonathan discuss how to define your target market, competitive analysis, and whether or not the federal minimum wage should be increased. That's Nathan, our new producer. All right, so let's talk target markets. All right, we uh, we decided to pick an article by Tim Barry again called "How to Define Your Target Market." No, it's a, it's a tricky question for a lot of small businesses. They they start to think you know they're making some sales, they've got a product, and then sometimes they do just fine on that uh, sort of premise. And then you start to talk about well, how many people out there will buy your product as you continue to grow? What's the limit? What's the upper limit? Real quick, why do they need a target market? Can we do a quick overview of? The yeah. benefits. And maybe even just define it in total here. I mean, the target market are the folks who might be viable to eventually purchase the good or service that you are selling. So the target market means uh, it's more specific. You know, we've used the example before. Nike doesn't try to sell shoes to everyone with feet. They try to sell to people who are somewhat athletic, uh, who have some disposable income, who kind of have that lifestyle that Nike supports. So right. that's their target market. And, you know, the same is true for spaghetti sauce. And I think that is a good natural lead to uh, to our, our sponsor. Right? Yeah, this episode is brought to you by Ragu, Ragu. Uh, with their classic Alfredo sauce. Let's jump right into Tam Samson because we've mentioned this a few different times. Absolutely. Well, the T-A-M, S-A-M, S-O-M. These are, uh, again, if you think of it like a pyramid on its, on its top, on its tip, the top is the TAM, the biggest chunk is the TAM, the middle section is the SAM, and the, all the way down to the point is the S-O-M, the SOM. So the TAM, that biggest group, is the total addressable market. Mm-hmm. Total addressable market means anyone who might have any relevance to your product on any level. So the reason you segment down to the next step, the segmented addressable market, is because the TAM is always too big. You'll it's never achieve it. It's always too irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. You want some more specificity for a number of reasons, the most of which is you need to actually have a practical group that you can actually reach. But you can also start to differentiate yourself from your competition as you work your way down from TAM to SAM. And then SOM, S-O-M, stands for share of market. Right. And quite simply, that's just the percentage of that segmented market Mm -hmm. that you actually intend to capture. So let's, you know, let's talk a little bit about that TAM and that SAM. I mean, how do you even start to define that from a, you know, from your business perspective? Yeah. And I think it's really a distinction between some primary research that you're going to have to do and some secondary research that you're going to have to do. Research really comes when you need to answer the question, well, how many people are in that TAM or that SAM? Here's how you figure that out. It's called quickfacts.census.gov. So this is all the census information that the government collects every few years. And you can click your state. You can click the city within your state and find your city. And you're going to be able to get specific demographic information about them. So some things that you can gather are age groups, uh, gender groups, ethnic groups and see the breakdown of percentage of the total population and where those groups are. So that's going to give you a really good idea about the total addressable market for your area. Uh, A lot of times you might start to exclude certain markets from that ideal SAM, that ideal segmented addressable market, just by the nature of who you think should be your ideal segmented addressable market. So if I think that my product is really addressed uh, specifically to young millennial males, then first of all, that's a very defined market, mm-hmm. but it may not also be who eventually 
buys all of my products, but it will absolutely define the nature of the marketing that I do, where I advertise, how I do outreach, that kind of thing. Okay, so quickfacts.census.gov, that's a version of secondary research where you are gathering data that's already been collected for you. Uh, but there's primary research that you can do, like we talked about surveys, uh, picking people out who you think represent your target market. And if you're a business that's up and running already, you know, maybe standing out on the corner with a clipboard, you might not have to go that far. You can actually just do the surveys at the register and ask people to, you know, fill them out for the chance to win something, offer an incentive. There's definitely plenty of easy, low-cost ways to ask your customers to give feedback. Yeah. All right, so... Pasta sauce. This goes back to, in Tim's article, him talking about further segmenting your audience. So this leads us to Malcolm Gladwell's TED Talk about pasta sauces, uh, referencing Howard Moskowitz, mm -hmm. I believe. Yes. So yes. Howard Moskowitz did uh, some research for companies, specifically for a pasta sauce company. And what he discovered through his research is that there are actually a myriad of preferences for pasta sauces. And that opened up the concept of, you know, really diving deep into niche marketing and creating those different sauces for all those different people. So we mentioned before this, this kind of thinking can really lead you to better marketing, more effective marketing, uh, and then of course more effective sales down that sales funnel. But what you're talking about is by defining and thinking about your ham, sam, som process, you can also start to refine your actual product line. Mm -hmm. So with Ragu, our sponsor Ragu, mm -hmm. Robusto, with Ragu's wonderful choice to diversify their product line, they in fact discovered a way to diversify and improve the saleability of their product line to a larger demographic and to more sort of sales net net over time. Uh, by simply understanding more deeply their own audience. So I got a story about you know how to infuse your personality into the business. Um, there's a, a Thai place, I don't know if you've had it here in Eugene, called Ubon Thai. Uh -huh. And uh, you know I think especially small business owners who are trying to start up think that they have to be you know uber professional, very clean, have a specific look in order to succeed, and really don't be afraid to let your personality kind of seep into how you do your business. So Ubon Thai, uh, they're open like three days a week. They're closed most of the time. And it's a sort of a cart feel. It looks it's like a, a cart. It's, it's a actually cart that's like pulled up to someone's house or it's something. It's like attached to their patio. It's confusing. When you go there, no you know, you're ordering. Right, but okay, look, I moved here a couple years ago and I wanted Thai food. So I looked on Yelp. What's the highest rated Thai food? Ubon Thai. Ubon Thai. That's true. So I think a part of the personality seeping into their business is what has helped them be so successful. They had to have great food to back it up, but when you go to eat there, you're actually going and sitting in their house, uh, and you're seeing like a slideshow of their travels in Thailand on the wall. So it's just like every part of who they are is mixed in with the business, and I think it contributes a lot to their success. Yeah, I would counter that with sure. my previous point. You know, your personality can be a lack of personality, you know, or a research-oriented personality as well. So don't feel like when we say personality, it has to be the Ubantai example. You could manufacture stainless steel screws in the most efficient way possible. Uh, that can be a personality. So I just want to emphasize that really your business personality is what we're talking about here, uh, but that is a good example. Yeah, there's some caveats to that, of course. So the further down the funnel sort of process here, we've gotten the TAM, I think we've talked a great deal about that. The SAM is really how you segment 
that addressable market. Mm -hmm. And as you get kind of further into that segmentation, there's another way to think about those segments as you develop them. And this is what we do here at Palo Alto Software as we develop a persona, which I think we've talked about a little in the past, where you really start to define a idyllic version of the customer. Mm -hmm. If I'm at a coffee shop, who is it that I envision walking in the door? And the reason you do this is, 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 is sort of defined by this idea of strategic segment interactions, right. intersection. By doing that, you're also defining the kinds of things that that customer is looking for. And as you start to develop these different personality types and overlap them, you'll start to find that there is a centralized set of customer traits that are most important to you. Nike might market to people with two feet who have disposable income, people with two feet who are uh, athletic, but really right. what, at the end of the day, their marketing addresses a conglomeration of these traits. Yeah, and you might end up having multiple target markets, and the way that you differentiate them is by you know calling one your primary target market, you might have a secondary target market, and sometimes a tertiary, um, but really focus your attention on your primary target market. This all kind of comes down to the basics of, of marketing. This target market, uh, you know, decision making is is going to help you in what we call the four P's. This is part of like marketing 101. You have three price, P's. the three P's: <laughs> price, promotion, placement, and product. And prego. The decisions that you've made with uh, defining your target market are going to help you as you decide what to do in those four P categories. But the reason you do this exercise is to save money, to hold the expenses down from those marketing efforts, to make sure you're not wasting tons of dollars going out the door, trying to reach people who have no interest in your product in the first place. Yep. How do you decide what the share of market is that you're gonna get? Well, a lot of times that's really much more of a business goal. And this is really okay. where this whole exercise boils down to more of a business plan component rather than a fun thought exercise. Mm -hmm. This has been fun, right? Yeah, I've had a ton of fun. So how do you guess how many people might buy your product if you are only doing this exercise for the first time? Well, uh, I think it's going to have to take some competitive analysis to figure out if there are already competitors on the market you have to assume that they have a share of market. What is it? Uh, if there's a big player, you can assume that they have a large share of the market. Start out with small percentages and test against it. See if you're getting that number. So if your SAM is 100,000 people, pick 5%. See if you can reach 5,000 of those people and Try it out in your first year. Yeah, I agree. You can really uh, you can learn a lot from your competitors. Uh, another research tool that we could recommend is a uh, sizeup.com. Okay. Sizeup.com gives you good research on competition, uh, where they serve, what their locale is, what their uh, customer service base is, that kind of thing. But to Tim Barry's point, who was on this podcast a little while ago in the Lean Planning episode. Uh, a lot of this stuff comes from iterative thinking. So, yeah, you set forth a guess, and frankly, it's a guess. It's your best guess. And that's okay. Test it for a month. Test it for two weeks. See how close you were. Iterate. You know, measure, rinse, repeat. So, you know, come back to that measurement over and over again. Uh, make sure that it's as accurate as it could possibly be, uh, and then refine it from there. So that's really the best way to get your share of market estimate. Yep. And then from then on, you can set it as a business goal. If you want to increase your share of market by 1%, that is a marketing goal and a sales goal that you can set forth as a business owner. So I have a goal for our listeners to, or a challenge as it were, uh -huh. reach out to us, uh -huh. uh, email us, bcast at bplans.com or shout out on Twitter at bplans and tell us 
who your target market is. Maybe you've gone through the exercise in this episode. Tell us who your target market is and give us some biographical information about them. That's fun. I would even love to hear if people have personas, especially if they've developed them after listening to us. If you've developed a persona for your business, meaning that perfect customer, have you given him a name? What does he do? I tell you ours is Garrett and he owns a bike shop and we can tell you all about him, but we'd love to hear and maybe that would be a fun article to post on B-Plants. Sure, absolutely. All right, we'd love to hear about it. Okay. So Jonathan, that was a lot to think about when it comes to target markets and target market analysis. You know, one cool way to really think about those target customers, the target market, is to think about what your competitors are thinking about. So how do you even know who your competitors are, what they're doing, what they're up to out in the world? Yeah, you could look at it as another uh, form of secondary research, find out what your competitors are doing, and that uh, might help you figure out a lot of what you should be doing. Some people think it's like doing a little spy work or espionage when you start thinking about your competitors, but you know, really it's an important way to define how you fit into your market. I'd love to introduce an expert here. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, we have Eric Sue with us here, who runs the enterprise digital marketing agency, Single Grain, and he's also the host of Growth Everywhere. It's a podcast in which he interviews entrepreneurs and gets uh, growth tips. Interesting. Eric, what's, uh, what's Single Grain all about? Yeah, Single Green is all about helping people uh, grow their revenues or helping businesses grow their revenues online uh, using online marketing services. So that's kind of been our bread and butter since we started. So when you think about competitive analysis, competitive uh, business thinking, you're thinking in the online area. You're really thinking about websites, mobile, online. So what, what can these small businesses, anyone, anyone out there, anyone who's running a Main Street small business all the way up to the more high tech businesses, how can they use... Uh, the internet, how can they use your information and your thinking to uh, get some of that competitive analysis underway? If you want to look at what your competitors are doing in terms of content, you know, everyone talks about content marketing, you know, uh, creating a blog and, you know, building their organic traffic that way. So the first thing you can do is you can use Google Alerts, which is free. Um, And all you really need to do is, you know, let's say, for example, um, you know, I'm optimizing for the keyword uh, red shoes. I want to see you know, if I'm selling, you know, the best red shoes in the world, I want to see what everybody else is writing about red shoes, right? So I want to email digest every way, every day from Google Alerts. I just go to, I literally will Google, Google Alerts, go there, set up my keyword, and I'll get a digest every single day. If you're looking to get a little more granular and get a little more detailed, you can use a tool called BuzzSumo. And what BuzzSumo does is uh, it allows you to search for, search for, articles that are performing the best in a specific space. So if I type in the keyword red shoes, I'm able to go into BuzzSumo and I'm able to see in the last year, the last six months, the last week or so, which article has done the best, how many social shares it's gotten, who has shared it specifically, what type of links it's gotten, so I can go all in and see exactly what's going on. That's just the first thing. Um, Do you guys have any questions around that before I move on to the next one? No, no. And if you've listened to previous podcasts, we've talked a lot about content marketing and how, you know, really people who spend a lot of times, a lot of their time doing something uh, are in fact experts in certain niche areas. Uh, So that's also a great way to get started in this content marketing area, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just to build off of that, I mean, you know, if you're doing content marketing, you have to naturally be thinking about, okay, you know, what type of keywords should I be optimizing for? And that's not to say you should be a robot and write specifically for search engines, but you have to figure out what keywords drive volume and what type of themes you can create around that. So the next tool I really like is called Similar Web. So what Similar Web does is it allows you to see 
how you're doing in general. Like how, if I go to similar web, I plug in one of my competitors, I'm able now to see, okay, you know, what does the breakdown of traffic look like for them? You know, is, is 20% of their traffic organic? Is the, is the rest of it like uh, social media and referral traffic? I'm able to see that. Let's keep rolling because I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to ask you a question probably after you've finished wrapping them all up just to kind of give me a, a case uh, example, a use case. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go through my one of my uh, new favorite tools right now called Datanize. So those of you that run any type of sales organization or do any type of prospecting at all, Datanize is fantastic because it basically is Google for sales team. It scrapes the entire web. Let's say, for example, I'm looking at Amazon, okay, and I use Datanize. I'm able to see, okay, how much revenue is this company is generating, how many employees they have, um, and you know, news around that specific company. So you can use this from a competitive standpoint, or you can use this from a sales standpoint or an outreach standpoint. Uh, Datanize is fantastic for that. And I'm gonna throw in a, a free tool, um, and that's Facebook Audience Insights. This allows you to see, you know, what type of audiences that you should be bidding on if you're running any type of Facebook ads at all. So, um, you know, let's say I type in a competitor. You know, I'm able to see, okay, you know. Um, people that like this competitor also like these pages on Facebook as well. So I get some insight. Uh, it tells me demographic information, age. It tells me what other specific interests that they have. Um, it's just a lot of loaded information that you typically can't really get anywhere else because you know Facebook has a social graph. This actually segues into the, the next tool. I'm, I'm trying to focus on free here because it's a smaller business. So Google Keyword Planner, it's, it's a great free tool uh, done in the AdWords interface. And basically what it will do is it'll tell you what type of keywords, uh, what type of keywords are relevant to the keyword that you've just entered. Or not only that, you can put in a specific website and it'll tell you what those keywords, what Google thinks uh, are you know, the relevant keywords for that specific landing page. So there's a lot of different ways you can play around with it. And uh, they also have something called the audience planner, which allows you to see, okay, you know, you can type in like nike.com and it will say, okay, based on this, you know, these other websites are relevant to advertise on. So it'll tell you which, which sites you can use on their uh, display network, which is for advertising. Um, I'm not going to bore you with too many details around advertising, but just understand that this is a free tool from Google that gives you a lot of, you know, valuable insights as to how you should be planning uh, your advertising or even your content campaign. So Eric, uh, for those who maybe don't have technology as their top skill, uh, which of these tools would you recommend to maybe get started with, you know, kind of get dip a toe in the water here of uh, some of this uh, research that you're talking about? or are there any reading materials that we could get started with before jumping all the way in? So for Google Alerts, that's probably the easiest one you can get started with because you want to, you know, you, you want to be looking at what's going on in your industry, right? So for myself, I want to be typing, you know, every day if I want to see what's going on in the digital marketing world without having to kind of dig around on my own, I just type in in quotes, you know, I go to Google Alerts and then, um, you know, I'll type in the keywords that I'm interested in. So one might be uh, digital marketing, right? Other one might be enterprise marketing. So you know, that way I don't have to go through all the pain of looking for things. I can just see what trends are popping up. That's the easiest way to see what's going on in your world. And the second thing, uh, the second part of your question I almost forgot is what resources you could start with if you're just starting out as a business owner. So, uh, the first blog that I recommend reading is quick sprout. That's Q U I C K sprout.com. Uh, it's from one of my friends called Neil Patel, who's, you know, great online marketing, very well known in the space. Um, and makes things very easy to understand and read. And he gives away all these free guides on his site. And he actually pays about $30,000 per guide and he just gives it away. It's crazy like that. And I also recommend reading inbound.org. It's basically like a, uh, it's like a forum where people can upvote and downvote, you know, the latest articles around marketing. 
Um, and I'm also going to give myself a shameless plug. Uh, you can listen to interviews that I do with entrepreneurs on growtheverywhere.com. Um, and the fourth one, growthhackers.com. It's similar to inbound, but it's a little more geared towards technology startup. The thing is, I recommend those because you can start on those, uh, those websites, but you can go way down into the rabbit hole. So, you know, if people want more, they can go down, but if they want to start with something, there's always something there to look at. Eric, that's great. Thank you so much. And, uh, where can we find more of your work if we want to follow up with you? Yeah. So again, it's uh, www.growtheverywhere.com. You're going to find all the interviews. There's actually, uh, there's long form written posts as well. Everything's completely free. Um, and then my agency is www.singlegrain.com and there's free resources there as well. Fantastic. We'll definitely include links to those in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. So Peter, for our chat today, uh, I thought maybe we could talk about the national conversation around the minimum wage. Some states have already raised it to a certain level. Others are thinking that the country should raise it to a, a certain level. Let's chat about it. Yeah, well, sure. It's a, it's a complicated topic, but uh, I'm willing to give it a try. All right. So I think at the, the basic level, the conversation around the minimum wage has to do with uh, the livable wage and the cost of living as it is in 2015. So at the federal level, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. But is that a living wage, as they say? Is that what people need to live off of? And, and as a business owner, does that feel expensive? Does that feel cheap? Well, if I do my math correctly, I think it's around $15,000 a year. That's definitely, if you're being paid $7.25 an hour, that's definitely under the poverty level. Not really a livable wage. Right. And those values are calculated uh, using empirical data and are modified quite frequently over time, right? This is not an arbitrary assessment. So as an employer, there might be the kind of obvious benefit. This is the kind of point I want to get to. As mm -hmm. an employer... Uh, whether you have one employee or 4,000 employees, if you're paying the absolute minimum, there's obviously the issue of the quality of the work you're going to get. Right. There's obviously the issue of their potential happiness, which also relates to their longevity as an employee. But frankly, if you have a slot that can be filled by any human uh, who with a, you know, minimal training, uh, you might say, okay, great, well, I can pay the absolute minimum. But are there other repercussions that occur because of that philosophy? Yeah. That mentality. yeah, I definitely think so. And something also to take note of is while there is a federal minimum wage, there is also state minimum wages. Well, not some, but more than half uh, of all states in the United right. States, including the District of Columbia, are uh, above the federal minimum wage. So there's some trends towards this. And it seems like over the past five years, there's been a lot more groundswell towards this movement of raising the minimum wage, mm -hmm. but not just raising it, raising it significantly. Is that right? right? Yeah, and like from the 725 to either 15 or like you mentioned, 1010. 10. Right. So what do you think about that? If I'm a small business owner and I have a workforce of let's say 40 or 100 people, all of whom are making minimum wage, uh, it could be certainly devastating to think that I need to nearly double, if it goes right. up to 15, nearly double my uh, expenditure to staff. Yeah. I think that that kind of fear is what's driving any sort of negative argument. It's really hard without that in place to argue that you want somebody in the United States to make less than it costs to stay alive, right? And that is, I think that is kind of the emotional heart of the argument is, are we okay with paying somebody less than it costs to live? I think there's a little bit more complexity than that. And I think as a business owner, you may be 
uh, want to think of yourself first, which is awesome. I think that's actually the right thing to do. But at a larger level, if you have a set of employees, again, let's say 100 employees, all of whom are at the minimum wage currently, there are other results that might occur. Now, certainly the health of those employees might suffer, but at a larger level, these employees will be incurring possibly federal aid benefits, uh, in general, they prove to be more expensive just as uh, people who live in the community. And then those folks, uh, you know, also have more exposure to health risks, more exposure to, you know, sort of unhappiness and the results of that. Uh, difficulty raising the families, all this kind of thing, lower education. Aside from just talking about it at an objective level and, you know, stating facts, yes. let's land on different sides. I think I'm willing to argue, you know, for the sake of devil's advocate here, of not raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Okay, what are you going to raise it to, though? I think that it should be a state-by-state -state decision. If, even if it's not economically feasible or appealing to me, I might want someone to force my hand, uh, even if it's at a federal or state level, so that I am not the Ebenezer Scrooge of, the, of my industry, right? Well, okay, so there already is a federal minimum wage, right? It naturally raises. And I think if you're going to raise it, at least raise it to the living wage of the state that has the lowest cost of living. Because rather oh, yeah. than just picking this arbitrary number of $15 an hour, okay. which might be the the cost of living in California, which is one of the higher states, uh, pick it for the lowest state mm -hmm. and make that your base minimum wage. State by state, they're already making these decisions. I think it's perfectly fine for the state to decide this is what the cost of living is in our state, this is what our minimum wage is. Okay, but don't you still run into the issue where something above the current minimum wage is still under the poverty level, still under a living wage, and thus you haven't solved the problem at all. You've just moved uh, the minimum to a point that is still unsustainable. It's possible, but I don't, I don't think the federal government should be deciding what it should be across the board because the cost of living is different state by state. Okay, so if the feds came in, if the federal government came in and said each state can have a sort of a moving target yeah. uh, within your state, and then you can decide. Yeah, and I think it's totally fine for the federal government to say, mandating you have to, as a state, make sure that it's the living wage for your state. Not everybody is Silicon Valley in California, you know, making millions of dollars. And you don't think there's a risk associated with the sort of Democrat-Republican nature of each of those states? I mean, wouldn't there be the ability to have some level of oversight and say our federal government has already assessed the cost of living in your state and it's at this level so you at least need to be at this level. Well then it feels like you're back to the idea of the Fed setting the minimum wage. If we were to set it at a reasonable place there is no valid research that shows that that would actually harm the profitability of businesses across the United States. Small businesses are not going to go out of business. It's not going to be this like massive, you know, doom and gloom, but there are going to be impacts. So small businesses who are selling products that are non-commodities, and if the price goes up because the labor costs went up, you might find that those things are bought less. I think Maybe. there's a larger net effect, though, that's uh, a larger suffering of America potential here if we try to people, drive people to the bottom of the range. So if people cannot afford basic necessities on a grand scale, we end up having to subsidize them at a larger level. We end up having to subsidize potentially their education or transport to education. Uh, what we develop is an unskilled labor force into our own future. It's basically a debt 
that we're incurring as a nation. So there are some other issues affecting this. And I think by just deciding to raise the minimum wage, I think it actually ends up being a Band-Aid solution. You're covering over in the short term what looks to be the problem. You know, since we're taking opposite stances yeah. here, I mean, we are talking about a Band-Aid solution. We are talking about a Band-Aid that needs to be stretched across a wound that has been growing for the last right. 30, potentially 40 years. What that means at a, at a sort of rational level, and again, at the small business owner level, is that your employees are giving you more value and you are technically making more money per employee and paying less for it in cash. We know that the expense of these employees is incurred elsewhere. And if that isn't incurred elsewhere, whether it's at a federal level, uh, you know, supporting with food stamps, supporting with other sorts of aid, uh, it is at a certainly a national level with our nation's future and the lack of skill that these workers have or the lack of motivation that they have. Um, you know, the other kind of dubious argument we always hear is, well, why don't you, you know, move somewhere else if things aren't good enough for there? Why don't you learn a new skill? Mm -hmm. And the fact is, in the current American workforce, there isn't the ability. Mobility is actually now at, uh, hindered because mm. of the lack of uh, unskilled jobs that we have available in different uh, sort of regions. You know, it's interesting to think of these revitalization programs. A lot of times you'll see these... Uh, you know, artisanal ice cream shops open up where once a uh, 1600 workforce uh, ice cream shop once existed. But the fact is these new places tend to cater to more of a boutique crowd. So the net net here is you've got people who are living under their living wage. You've got companies who are either not willing to change or who feel hamstrung in their ability to change. And then this persistent decline in the capabilities of our American workforce. Yeah, and I got to ask, though, like, if you are suggesting that raising the minimum wage is going to solve this, how is raising the minimum wage going to solve the problem of, of uh, you know, education level and skill level for, for employees? Uh, well, that, that actually has been researched quite well. Uh, you know, families that have better access to food and aren't struggling to uh, keep the lights on will generally have more ability to uh, succeed in education and feel like there are options the net result there are people who have a workforce, an incoming workforce that has uh, the sort of attitude that there are more options for them, that they should pursue higher education, not necessarily because it's a vehicle for job placement, but because it accelerates their ability to learn more in a certain field, which then might help them innovate in that field. I mean, that is what has driven uh, the sort of country at large and certainly the greatest research uh, that we've ever done. Uh, so yeah, hamstringing that in our future is uh, necessarily a type of debt. But I think raising the minimum wage is going to effectively, especially if we're talking about effectively doubling the minimum wage, that's going to force people to hire fewer people than they would originally be able to hire. Uh, at the smaller business level, uh, there's a lot that says, yes, if you have exactly such tight margins uh, that, you know, a 7 or $8 uh, you know, difference, uh, you know, actually makes the difference between one and two employees. Yes, absolutely. But again, that's just a, that's just kind of the cost of doing business. I mean, you could say the same for any level of pay and still make the same argument. We need to keep up with our own progress. All we're doing right now is making up for the lost ground that we have because of the fact that we've grown as a nation, we've grown as a population, and we haven't kept up this minimum wage concept throughout that time. Mm -hmm. Really, again, since the mid-70s is kind of where I feel like there's a, 
a sort of slowing down of the increase in minimum wage relative to our overall economy and our overall productivity as a nation. So, And us. what I will say is regardless of what the federal minimum wage is now or next year or in five years, there's something for small businesses to consider, and that is this. The wages that you are paying your employees currently is an opportunity for you to have a competitive advantage over other businesses in the area. By choosing to pay more than the minimum wage, you are effectively giving yourself the opportunity to get a higher skilled worker or more productive worker, somebody who's going to be happy that you're paying them that amount. I mean, go ahead and think about the people who you're employing as, you know, part of the community, part of the community that you live in, and think about, you know, what you would want to have as your neighbor, as your down the street neighbor, whatever that is. Uh, the point being that these people are either going to have the living wage provided by you, Right. Uh, or they're going to stay, stay alive on some sort of other subsidy. And you are still paying that by your taxes uh, or by costs that could be going elsewhere. So, you know, you're, we're all kind of paying for it at some level anyway. Uh, so really, why don't we just pay for it in the way that is most direct? And are you treating your employees with the level of respect that allows them to have a livable wage? All right, so what about you, listener? If you have an opinion on the minimum wage hike, uh, we'd like you to tell us about it. You can email us at bcast at bplans.com, or if you'd like, you can give us a shout-out on Twitter. We're at bplans, and you can use the hashtag bcast. Yeah, if you're a small business owner yourself or have an opinion on how these changes might affect small businesses out there across America, let us know. We'd love to hear your opinion, and we'd love to include it maybe in the discussion. If we missed anything today, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. That's bcast at bplans.com, or at bplans on twitter with the hashtag bcast if you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show send us an email at bcast at bplans.com that's bcast at bplans.com our theme music is by jasinski the bcast is brought to you by palo alto software makers of bplans.com and live plan visit bplans.com for everything you need to start planning and growing your business